This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello. I am Ari Lamb, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. We have an incredible show coming up. We have Dr. Erica Brown, an amazing, amazing guest, and we're going to get to all of that. But first, a bit about what we do here. Ancient tradition divides up the Bible into 54 portions, just about one for each week of the year. So each week, we take a look at a new portion, and we speak with thinkers, writers, artists, faith leaders, and more about how this incredible tradition of wisdom can help us interpret, well, just about everything around us, from politics to pop culture and beyond. So let's dive right into this week's portion, which is more or less Genesis chapters 28 to 31, give or take a few verses here and there. And this is the part of Genesis where we're introduced basically to the entire cast of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So you got Jacob and his wives, including Rachel and Leah. And then you got Joseph and his siblings with names that range from the familiar, like Benjamin, to the waspy, like Levi or Simon, to the vaguely founding fathery, like Issachar or Zebulun. Look, there's a ton going on here, but I want to focus on one story in particular, which is sweet but mysterious, and that's the birth of Leah's son named Judah. Now, Judah is important because, as many different religious traditions will know, Judah is the ancestor of King David. But what I want to focus on is not Judah's descendants, but actually on Judah himself. And specifically, I want to focus on why he's called Judah. Now, the Bible tells us that when Leah gives birth to Judah, her fourth child, she says, now I will thank the Lord, and therefore she called his name Judah. And that may sound like a non sequitur, but only in English, because in ancient Hebrew, the name Judah quite literally means thank you. So Leah says, I will give thanks to God, and therefore I called my child thank you. Now, there's this really ancient Jewish tradition in the Talmud about Judah's name that I've always found just amazing. And it picks up on the fact that this is actually the first time in the entire Hebrew Bible that the words thank you actually appear on the page. So the Talmud just takes that observation one step further and says that, in fact, in the entire history of the world since creation, no one had ever truly thanked God until Leah came along and gave birth to Judah. But wait, how's that even possible? You mean to tell me no one had ever said thank you to God until now? Leah was the first? I mean, what, we've had Noah, Abraham, Sarah, any number of, you know, faithful figures and not one of them had ever said a proper thank you? How's that even possible? So last week I mentioned my grandfather, Rabbi Norman Lamb, uh, who was my teacher and one of the truly legendary Jewish leaders of the 20th century. And he passed away earlier this year, and and I miss him very much, as we talked about uh, last time. And he actually had an amazing answer to this very question that I think is just completely life-altering. And he basically said there are two forms of gratitude. So first, there's gratitude as compensation. That's when you give thanks because you got something. So it's kind of like a verbal or an emotional receipt. You give me something, and I acknowledge it. But there's also a much higher form of gratitude, which is gratitude as consecration. And this kind of gratitude, consecration, happens when someone has so fundamentally shaped who you are that when you say thank you, it's actually not for anything in particular. It's a thank you that really just comes out of the depths of your 
soul. It's a thank you that's so real and heartfelt that you can say it even when things aren't going perfectly for you, and even when you haven't gotten a favor in advance. And this is the kind of gratitude that Leah is the first person ever to offer. So, I mean, Leah actually has a really hard life, all things considered. Although she's married to Jacob, we learn from the book of Genesis that Jacob actually was really in love with her sister Rachel. And throughout the story, Leah keeps trying to establish this normal, loving family life and nothing seems to work. And you could have forgiven her or anybody for ending up a bitter person, angry at the world and angry at God. But instead, she offers God this incredible thank you. And she has this extraordinary ability to recognize the good things in her life whether it was her wonderful children or her family, to, more importantly, her unique, exalted place in the history of faith. And true, she suffers a lot of disappointment, but that's precisely the point. She doesn't give thanks to God for giving her stuff. She gives thanks because this relationship, her relationship with God, had shaped and has shaped everything about who she is and who she hoped to be. Now, look, this lesson about the importance of gratitude isn't just something that's true in general or in the abstract. It's crucial specifically at this moment in American history, especially in the middle of a really difficult year for all of us in different ways, but where so many of us suffered terrible disappointments, whether it's losing a loved one, losing a job, or just losing friendship or contact with our fellow human beings, now is an especially important time to remember what we're grateful for. And so to help us think through what this looks like, I brought on one of the most incredible people I know, Dr. Erica Brown. Dr. Brown is director of the Mayberg Center for Jewish Education and Leadership at George Washington University. She's an award-winning author on everything from ethics and the Bible to leadership and someone who's thought and written a great deal about the importance and practice of gratitude. So Erica, welcome to the show. I think, Ari, the appropriate uh, response for a show on gratitude is to say, thank you so much for having me. Well, there we go. We're already teaching (laughs) lessons from the get-go. That is a perfect segue into the first thing that I wanted to share, which is uh, why I'm so excited that you're with us, not just because you're an expert on the topic, but because you are a very, very special uh, mentor and a very special person to me. And you're one of those people in my life to whom I owe that higher form of gratitude is consecration. So I actually want to quickly share with the folks out there how we met. Basically, we were both invited to speak to a Jewish audience over the holiday of Passover, and you were the superstar. And I was just like some young person that they were taking a shot on having over. And uh, so I get there with my family and it's just myself, my wife. And at the time we had two kids, Uh, one was a toddler and one was a newborn. And we were completely overwhelmed. We had no clue what we were doing, no idea what to do with ourselves. And there you are with your amazing family. And everybody is trying to talk to you and wants a piece of you because everyone knows you're amazing. And you had no reason in the world at all to even take notice of me. But instead, what you did is you walked right up to us and you insisted that we come and eat dinner with your family. And you made us feel incredibly valued and so cared for at a really vulnerable moment for me and for us. And so, first of all, I'm so glad anytime I get the chance to talk to you just to say thank you. Oh, well, you're very welcome, Ari. Your family's a delight. And there were it was every reason to bring you into our family, into our lives and to uh 
share a meal together. And I'm really delighted to be on the show. And I do want to say, because you spoke about your grandfather, who was a teacher for me in university and well beyond that, uh, his writings, his thoughtfulness, his scholarship, and his really transcendent way of being in the world. And I just wanted to pause and take a moment to acknowledge the loss to you and your family. But I think it was a loss to global jury and to the world that cares about the impact of religion on society. That's such a sweet thing of you to say, and and um, I'm glad to know that there are really people who can not only care about his memory, but be stewards of his legacy, and you really are one of those people, so you're very special to me. And I'd love to talk about sort of gratitude as a whole, and I'd also love to get to the Leah story, but maybe let's start with the basics. Like, How do you cultivate a sense of gratitude? What kind of tools do you need? What kind of outlook on the world do you need? You know, I mean, I, I think there's gratitude as an act and gratitude as a way of walking and being in the universe. And I think we all know about the first and very few people know about the last. Um, I was actually uh, listening to a BBC program about Rabbi A.J. Heschel, who introduced to the world the expression radical amazement. And this was really quite uh, close to his death. And the interviewer on this program, The Eternal Light, and this was done in 72, asked him, you know, Rabbi, tell me, you've lived a long time, you've seen a lot, what surprises you? Does anything still surprise you? And he paused and he said, everything surprises me. And I just love that because when we're talking about gratitude as a way of being, as opposed to something that you say that's just a courtesy line, I think it demands something very different. It demands us to look at the world with a degree of wonder, with that radical amazement. Heschel said, you know, radical amazement is the chief characteristic of the religious man's attitude toward history and nature. If you want to be a deeply spiritual person, then gratitude is what unfolds all of that. So can you take us a little bit deeper into how that plays out in the life of Leah? Because she's somebody who could have regarded her life with a great deal of cynicism. And the turning point or the inflection point in her life seems to be that choice or that decision to regard the world in a different way. So can you take us a little bit deeper into that narrative? Yeah, I can. And, I, and I'm so glad that you asked me because I think our most profound experiences of gratitude don't come from things that we obviously, you know, feel blessed about. I think that very often where we can touch those moments of profound appreciation really come from the experience of previous suffering. That's why I think Judaism's um, MO, if you like, is to bless on the bad just as we bless on the good. And looking back with perspective on things that caused you pain that now you're grateful for. And I think when you look at the text, and it, Ari, is it okay if I read a little bit of the text? Because I want to contextualize her story. That's what we're all about. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Okay, so we're in Genesis 29, and we're going to start with 31. You gave the background. Leah was the first wife of Jacob, but she was a mistake. She was an accident. Her father Laban had placed her in the wedding bed, in the marital bed. Jacob thought he was marrying someone else. So you could imagine, I know this didn't happen at your wedding, nor did it happen at mine, and no one I know, <laughs> but waking up and discovering that the woman next to you is not the woman that you thought you were marrying 
and what that experience might be like for you, but also what that experience was like for Leah, feeling rejected, feeling not even second best, trying to make do with the situation that she was forced into. And I'll read the text. The Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she declared, it means the Lord has seen my affliction. It also means now my husband will love me. Well, what what a desperate thing to say. And to name a child after this very short-term, but obviously profound experience in her life of being neglected and thinking, if I have a child and Jacob's mission in the world is to build a people, then perhaps he'll love me, not because he loves me for who I am, but he loves me for what I can give him that my, what we call in academic literature, my sister wife, Rachel, cannot provide. And she continues, she conceives again and she bears another son. And she says, this is because God heard that I was unloved and he's given me this one also. And his name was Simeon or Shimon from the Hebrew Shema, to listen or to hear. So by the second son, Ari, she is still not a happy woman. She still feels that she can't get her husband's attention and that he's not attracted to her. And she conceives. Dinners at home are just horribly awkward. Yeah, horribly awkward. Well, I'd say when you have multiple wives, it's going to be awkward. But uh, it's always bad. It's always it's always uh, it's always a weird dinner time. But the Uber Eats bills are through the roof, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, she has another son and she thinks that this time her husband is going to pay attention because she's had three sons. In other words, it wasn't one. It wasn't two. It wasn't three. And as she's naming these sons, I can just say for myself as a reader and also as a wife and also as a mother, the feeling of pain that I experience with her suffering to somehow think that she's going to win this battle of affection through her womb. And she has a last son. This is Judah, who you spoke about. And she declares, this time I will praise the Lord. At this time, I will thank God. And you wonder, on the one hand, why she didn't thank God in the beginning, and maybe because she hadn't achieved what she needed to achieve with these children, which was Jacob's affection. Um, Nechama Price, in her lovely new book, Tribal Blueprints, points out that perhaps after four, she had gained Jacob's love and the feeling of affection from her numerous children. So maybe she finally hit the ticket, or maybe she got love from another source, and that's the love of children and looking at her family and feeling, I have built something here. And so that gratitude maybe could have only come from her feeling that she had slowly, incrementally evolved into a person who could walk with gratitude. And I think that's really, especially given these times, Ari, and I want to talk about the difficult political landscape, the difficult landscape of COVID, of being able to say, I've evolved from a cynical or angry person where I treat the world in an adversarial, hostile way to a place where I can say, this time, right now, I can be grateful. I love that because it really is a choice. And it shows, by the way, that Leah doesn't come on the scene as an extraordinarily, epically, innately grateful person. Like she really makes a choice to actually view the world in a different way than she had viewed it before. And you've written actually a lot about gratitude over the years. And I remember that it was actually in one of your essays that I first came upon this wonderful quote from uh, Van Jones, the activist Van Jones. And he said, 
Martin Luther King didn't become famous by saying, I have a complaint, <laughs> yeah. which is just a wonderful way of putting it. And, you know, as you said, we're living at a time of great change in this country, whether it's trying to recover from a pandemic in a public health sense or recover from racial wounds and heal racial injustice in a social sense or recover from an historically divisive election in a political realm. And at the heart of that Van Jones quote, I think, is the sense that if we want to implement great change and kind of navigate through these challenges, even in the face of great pain or or terrible injustice, having that outlook, that worldview of gratitude can play an important role. So can you explain that a little bit? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I love that quote, and I'm glad that you share my love for it. And I want to, you know, throw out something else that I've read during this period. It's an article by Ella Aronson called The Resilient Leader. And she says, the resilient leader doesn't bounce back. He or she bounces forward. I love that. And I think when you twin the two of them and say, what is my role right now as a citizen of the world, as a citizen of the United States, as a person within my family, within my community, reaching out to people who are more isolated than I am or who are not in good health? I think that part of our experience and response has to be, will I be carried by anger? And I think anger does accomplish a lot in the social activist space. But at the same time, anger is never inspiring. There's something brutal about it and hostile about it. And I think we're feeling the after effects of that in a very powerful way right now that's uncomfortable. You know, as a human being, are you the person that people want to be around because you're someone who exudes hope and inspires And, you know, you don't go to that place of gossip and pettiness and small mindedness and triviality. You're able to somehow not only live in this higher space, you're actually able to bring other people with you to lift other people up. And I think that takes conscious decision making every single day. I know we were talking about Thanksgiving and thinking about the idea of a day of thanks. The Jewish tradition is to wake up and the first word in Hebrew prayer is modeh or modah, I am grateful. So thank you is truly the first word that a spiritual person, spiritual person of the Jewish faith rises and says. And I think that Thanksgiving is is fantastic. It's great to have days on the calendar. Mother's Day, just letting my children know Mother's <laughs> Day. A PSA it's, it's not, it's not soon, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember my mom saying, oh, every day is Mother's Day. And I don't know if she said that to just console herself for all the gratitude that we didn't express. I do like to think that over the course of a holiday year that we are reminded. But I think that when you're a person of deep gratitude, you don't need those reminders. In fact, if anything, you are giving them out to other people. I want to share a classroom experience that I had. I like to give what I call life homework. And as a teacher of adults, we're not used to doing homework and certainly not life homework. So one assignment was I'd like you to keep a journal of compliments and give 10 compliments a day. And then when we meet next week, we'll talk about the experience. And to the person, every single person said, when I started this, I thought you wanted me to do this to acknowledge and make other people feel good. But a week later, I realized that the person who feels the best about it is, is me wow. because I was able to notice things that were other people were doing. And I, and I think a lot of us live in a compliment deficit. Right. There's just so many people who are naysayers, who are just always trying to kind of tarnish the moment. And we can all decide not to be that person and make other people around us feel great and feel good as a result. You know, it's so interesting. I love that exercise. And it reminds me of this relatively ancient Jewish tradition to make it a practice to say a hundred blessings every day. 
And, you know, I kind of used to think it was a little bit silly because it's so formulaic and it's rote. But it strikes me that perhaps the genius behind that tradition is that forcing yourself to say a hundred blessings every day actually encourages you and compels you to find things to bless God for, to be thankful for. And there's something very powerful about that. Yeah, very powerful. And I'm, I'm mindful of a of something that Rabbi Joseph Salvage, who I know worked closely with your grandfather, uh, wrote. That he was a major uh, American Jewish thinker. Yeah, major thinker, existentialist philosopher on some level, Talmudist. And he talked about the fact that for the Jew, there's no such thing as routine. Everything's a wondrous miracle, excited by everything from the novel to the unknown to the everyday and the ordinary in everything. He, and I'll add, and she sees the glory of God over everything. He utters a benediction and describes that blessing as a moment of grace, a great sublime moment of the utterer in which he attains a deep vision and acute look through the miraculous portal, torn open by a hidden hand to reveal the world that is utterly good and pleasant and entirely miraculous. And I love that image that the blessing is a way of sort of tearing off the veil of ugliness that allows us to glorify the revealed and be able to look at it the way that we haven't looked at it before. You know, there's lots of ways to eat an orange. And if you're eating it mindfully, you're making a blessing beforehand, you're looking at it, you're smelling it, you're tasting it, you're tearing apart the segments. And just that little moment can be that moment of gratitude. And that's that's such an ordinary experience with such extraordinary ramifications if we choose to make it so. You know, if saying thank you, if if having that mindset of gratitude, of feeling that sense of wonder about everything around us is so fantastic and so phenomenal, why is it that so often ingratitude, failing to say thank you, seems to be the norm, right? I know for most of us, just the act of saying thank you seems like such a normal person thing to do that anyone <laughs> who was raised by someone halfway decent, you know, knows to say thank you. And yet we all know that in real life, saying or hearing thank you is actually the exception rather than the rule. So why is that? Why do people find it hard to say thank you? Yeah, I, I'm with you. In fact, I have to tell you that my son was cleaning out his room after he got married and he found a thank you note from his bar mitzvah that he had not mailed. In fact, the stamp was no longer good. And he looked at- Just one. Just one, right, just one. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, I don't have to send this. I said, oh yeah, you do, <laughs> right? Um, I love that. That's amazing. So, um, so I think, Ari, you and I are in good company because William Shakespeare in Twelfth Night said, I hate ingratitude more in a man than lying, vainness, babbling, drunkenness, or any taint of vice whose strong corruption inhabits our frail blood. So I think Shakespeare was onto something and he understood. And in the fantasy draft of great thinkers, you want Shakespeare on your <laughs> you team. You absolutely yeah. want Shakespeare on your team. In fact, I don't know how to play fantasy football, but fantasy literature, we can play anytime. Um, so, oh, it's on. It's on. <laughs> so when you think a little bit about why ingratitude for Shakespeare was so foundational, you think if you cannot say thank you, for something as basic as waking up in the morning of your clothing, of whatever financial situation, of, of the finding purpose and meaning in work. If you can't do that, then I can't impress you. There's nothing that's going to move you. In fact, David Hume, the philosopher, said of all crimes that human creatures are capable of committing, the most horrid and unnatural is ingratitude, especially when it's committed against parents. And I think, you know, to that gratitude deficit or compliment deficit, how many of us as parents are often complimented by our children? And then we have to ask ourselves, well, how often do I as an adult compliment my 
parents and really ask ourselves if we're able to embody this sense of gratitude. I think one of the ways in which I've conceived of gratitude is the more specific, the less ingratitude. And it was the more unique that expression of thanks is. I take my cue from the Passover Seder from this beautiful prayer, this song that we sing, Dayenu, where we go through a litany of things that God did for the Israelites as he removed them from their situation of slavery, brought them to Sinai, brought them to Israel. And at each step, it would have been enough, God, had you only done this. And of course, when you're looking back with hindsight, it wouldn't have been enough. We needed all of those stages. But I think the poem, the song is telling us, no, no, I want you to know this is the proper way to say thank you, is to actually incrementally list, you did this for me and you did that for me, and it would have been enough had you only done this. And actually, that's the way I like to write my thank you notes, whether it's email. I know this is your, this is your hottest take. <laughs> thank you notes, detailed. You have to. <laughs> well, you know what? If you could write, I love it. If you could write a thank you note that someone could throw out because it wasn't unique to their gift. In fact, I once did an exercise in a nonprofit setting. You're going to love this art. And I said, someone gave your organization a million dollars, write the thank you note. And the person wrote, dear so-and-so, thank you so very much for your generous gift to our organization. And then signed it sincerely. Right. And I actually, you know, without trying to embarrass the person, but really saying, what do you think the recipient thought? It was what, what, how did that land? And I think that's part of the exercise of saying gratitude with specificity is saying, I want this to land so that this moment could only be unique between two individuals who shared an experience. And I think that's what makes people feel that they're deeply thanked. We have some literature in the fundraising world that people who give money, donors don't feel that they're thanked until they're thanked seven times. And I suppose that means in seven different ways. So that's something to think about if you're out there in the world uh, trying to um, canvas funds for a cause that's really important. People who give money want to feel that they're deeply appreciated. So that sense of not wanting to make yourself vulnerable, not feeling like you need other people, I'm not going to say thank you because it feels so, uh, it makes me feel dependent. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of important for understanding the contemporary moment or even take your, your fundraising example, which I think is so poignant, we just fail at a very basic level to acknowledge other people in our lives who've done things for us, things that have helped us to get along and to, to flourish and to live. I often feel like that might be the challenge that we're facing now at this political moment, this social moment, which is that there's all sorts of polarization and people sort of feel like there are at least two teams And we kind of treat everybody else on the other team or the other side, as it were, as if they were actively working against us. When the truth is that as a nation, as an American experiment, I mean, it's impossible to get along without the other half. And is part of our challenge at this moment just the inability to forget, admit, to even conceive that we might need the other half, that they might have done something for us that's worth saying thank you for, or at least allowing ourselves to feel somewhat vulnerable? Is it possible that some of the challenges we have now are just kind of gratitude deficiencies or an inability to feel that way about other people whom we just sort of instinctively detest? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm struggling so much with this. Ari is someone who, you know, works on a campus. Well, right now we're we're working from home, but who's on a campus where the cancel culture thrives. And you say to yourself, 
you know, on the one hand, there's this push for empathy, but the empathy is really directed at those who think like we think. I just finished Arthur Brooks's book, Love Your Enemy, and it was really, I think, full of important insights about our failure to be curious about those who don't think the way that we think. I've had numerous conversations with close friends and colleagues who don't know what to do with the hate that they have. And I'm like, why don't we put the hate language down? Because that language isn't going to serve anybody. We're living in obviously an extremely fractured time. And it's hard for people to think how we're going to get out of this as a nation. And then you have to say, well, how do I get out of this when I'm an individual where I can't see I'm in a marital spat or I'm arguing with one of my children or I'm not getting along with a member of my family or a friend? There are ways that we reach across that invisible aisle and do that through a sense of humility. And so I find the conversation about empathy needs to take a backseat to a conversation about humility. Um, I was hoping, and I have seen in some contexts, that our current situation allows us to feel more vulnerable. I mean, we're physically so vulnerable right now because of COVID, and we are dependent on each other, and we're dependent on a country that can move forward so that we can get beyond this. And we don't like to think of ourselves as indebted. And I think that's one of the reasons children have such a hard time individuating from their parents and saying thank you because I want to think this is a very American way of parenting. And I think in Europe, that is not the case where people think I have built myself, my individual, my rugged individualism. I have created myself and unable to say we're actually created by a variety of forces. Some we love and some we don't like, and we don't always appreciate. I feel profoundly grateful to America in this moment. And I have to say, I did a post-election talk with a group of professionals, nonprofit professionals. And, um, and they played America the Beautiful and they played it in a few languages when it was over. And I said, oh, thank God we played it at the end because my mascara is running everywhere. Hearing that song and the profound lyrics and thinking of all the different contexts in which I've heard that song made me say, America is worthier than this. We are built on something that is more enduring, more lasting and more transcendent than the very low place we are now. But we're not going to get out of it until each of us makes a pledge and a commitment to go beyond empathy and to embrace humility and curiosity. Amen. Oh, we couldn't end on a better note than that. Erica, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, I'm really excited to have you back again. It's been a delight. And um, and again, in the spirit of gratitude, I'm, I'm thankful to be with you to talk about this subject. And I'm just really thankful for you. And likewise, couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much. At the end of the day, giving thanks isn't just something you say, it's a whole way of being. It's about looking at the world, not with cynicism, but with wonder. So whether you're Leah giving thanks to God, or just a regular person trying to shine a little light in the darkness of 2020, let's challenge ourselves to remember that giving thanks is not a transaction, it's not about handing out receipts. Saying thank you is not about what you do or what you get, it's about who you are. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. 
The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.